The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Before we meet today's guests, let me tell you about another podcast I host called Conversations on the Edge. Conversations on the Edge introduces you to a motley crew of thinkers with offbeat and bold perspectives on spirituality, community, and culture. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you enjoy Essential Conversations, you'll love Conversations on the Edge just as much. Our guest today, Dr. Kelly McGonigal, is a research psychologist, a lecturer at Stanford University, and an award-winning science writer. She's the author of the international bestseller, The Willpower Instinct, The Upside of Stress, and Yoga for Pain Relief. Her newest book is The Joy of Movement, how Exercise Helps Us Find Happiness, Hope, Connection, and Courage. And the book is featured in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Kelly McGonigal, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you for having me here. This is a fascinating book. One of the reasons it's fascinating is I rarely move. Maybe we'll change that. I know. That's what I'm hoping. I had to actually move to get the book off my shelf, but that's about the extent of my movement. So we'll start with this very powerful claim that you make right in the beginning of the book that is motivating, I hope, to myself and least some of our listeners. This is what you write. Quote, around the world... People who are physically active are happier, more satisfied with their lives, have stronger sense of purpose, and experience more gratitude, love, and hope. I think you're right. So I'm not going to argue the point. What I would like to know is, given this claim, and you do, I think, prove it in the book, why is it so difficult to get people up and moving? Well, I think, you know, I two responses to that. One is that actually there are many people who regularly experience the joy of movement. Um, There actually is a bit of a misperception that that sort of all human beings live sedentary lives. And actually one of the things that I discovered in researching and writing this book is that that many people um, actually have found ways to make movement a part of their life, whether that's 
as exercise or for transportation or as the way that they connect with family and friends. And I think that when people struggle to do that, it can be for a number of reasons. One is obviously the, the challenge of finding time for something that we often relegate to thinking that it's something that is good for us as opposed to something that is intrinsically pleasurable or meaningful. And you know, when we start to think about movement as a chore that we have to fit in, it sometimes doesn't become a priority. Another reason can be that when people start to engage with movement, often they do it in ways that can sabotage the natural joy that is possible from movement. They might go to say um, a fitness center that emphasizes body shaming or um, the idea of weight loss as the only reason that you would ever choose to use your body. Um, and in those settings, a lot of things get in the way of actually experiencing your own body as powerful or as a, a vehicle for pleasure and connecting with others. And instead, you can get trapped in this mindset of tracking how many calories you burn or looking in the mirror and feeling like um, you, that you don't have the right body or, or all those things that can come up in the fitness industry that aren't necessarily connected to the joy of movement. And there are any number of other reasons why. But I think that when people actually do find a way to make movement a part of their life, particularly when they separate it from the idea that you have to engage in movement as medicine, or you have to exercise in order to fix the body that you have, and instead begin to really pay attention to the joys that are inherent to moving your body, um, that's when people often will realize this is something that, that is worth um, putting at the center of my life. So let me tell you how I experience movement for okay. real not the joking around so yeah. i i like to walk mostly i walk at the gym so i'm it's not i don't think body shaming is an issue for me at the gym uh not because my body isn't shameful just because i'm too absorbed in watching television while i'm on the treadmill so you know i watch msnbc and cnn and if i have to i flip over to fox and by the time I've walked, I don't know, let's just say even a quarter of a mile and I go several miles, I'm already ticked off. Mm -hmm. There's no joy in it because the television is ruining it. But if I turn the TV off, I, I'm just bored. That's one kind of walking I do. I also walk when the weather is, is conducive. I, I walk, we have this beautiful multi-mile greenway here in the middle of Tennessee that goes for, for I think, 25 miles I find that much more enjoyable. And the third thing I do is Qigong. Mm. So here's, here's my sense of joy, and, and I want your take on why this might be. I don't think I get any joy from the gym. I get joy walking in the woods, not because I'm walking. I think it's because of the woods. But most joyful is Qigong, which is pretty slow movement. I definitely am not working up a sweat. Um, I don't think there's any cardiovascular benefit to it. I'm not sure, but I doubt it. And yet that's the one that brings me the most joy. I wonder if you have an opinion about the kind of movement and the setting. I mean, you mentioned body shaming at the gym, but the environment, how important is the environment and how important is the kind of movement that a person does? Yeah, so let's talk about all three of those examples. So one thing we know about the neuroscience of movement is that when you go from being inactive to active, and, and walking is a perfect example of this, it actually primes you 
to feel more optimistic, more hopeful, to experience more positive emotions and more energy. And so, you know, in a way, if you are exposing yourself to media that makes you feel frustrated or angry, in a way, you're kind of undermining what we call the the feel better effect. It's one of the classic findings that that movement in general makes people feel more hopeful and optimistic. So one of the first remedies would be to change what you're feeding your mind while you're moving your body. And I, I mean, I know you are a bit of an expert in this. I'm sure you can imagine other things that you could choose to put your attention on, whether listening or reading or even contemplating um, while walking on a treadmill at a gym, that could really amplify the natural feel-better effect. Movement is actually a wonderful time to engage in reflection or contemplation or to listen to things that make you feel optimistic, whether it's podcasts like this. So I'm going to just first off say, I'm not surprised you don't feel joy if you're feeding yourself something that that kind of feeds your inner conflict. And that's kind of an easy fix. And music, by the way, is a wonderful way to magnify the natural feel better effect that comes from getting our heart rate up a little bit and some of the endorphins that are flowing from movement. But I love that you mentioned walking in the woods because any activity that takes place in a natural environment has one of the strongest, most powerful immediate effects on mood and mindset. And you're right that environment has a lot to do with it. But research also shows that being active in a natural environment amplifies the the effects, the, the spiritual and the psychological effects of being in nature above and beyond simply being there. There's something about moving our bodies that, that makes it easier for us to feel that sense of self-transcendence or connection with something bigger than ourselves, or just to feel that, that sense of uplift that people often find in nature. So I would encourage you to do that again and in, in, whenever it works with your life and, and with your environment, um, and to actually trust that the movement is contributing to that effect. And then when it comes to cheek you know, that's a mindful movement that has so many benefits above and beyond, as you said, you know, sort of the cardiovascular benefit. I really encourage people to pay attention to their direct experience with movement. There's no form of movement that doesn't benefit your physical health, even if you think you're not getting your heart rate up. But you don't need to sort of make that the primary metric by which you're judging the value of an activity. And activities like Qigong can have powerful effects on what's happening in your body and in your brain. And the flow state that people experience in, in Qigong, other martial arts, yoga, and other mindful movements, um, there's significant research to suggest that that is um, powerful for our mental health as well as our physical health. And I think one of the things that now you've noticed this yourself, I would encourage anyone listening to think, okay, there's probably versions of movement like that that will really speak to you and other that other forms that you do because you think is good for you. For me, the most um, powerful form of movement is moving to music and community. It's one of the reasons why I teach dance classes um, and dance fitness classes, because I know that music and moving with other people are two things that will amplify all of the other benefits of, of being active. Okay. So I think people who are listening, either they've had the experience or they could easily test this out. There's a deeper claim that you make when you're, you're quoting from uh, the neuroscientist Daniel Wolpert. You can tell us who he mm-hmm. is if you want. So here, here's the quote that you have from Dr. Wolpert. He says, the entire purpose of the human brain is to produce movement. Movement is the only way we have of interacting with the world. So the second half of that, I get it. I mean, I, the whole world is is really movement. Nothing is static. So... I get that movement is the only way we have of interacting with the world because the world itself is movement. But what got me was the entire purpose of the human brain is to produce movement. I thought it was to invent 
Big Macs or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us more about the entire purpose of the human brain is to produce movement. I know. So that's a bold claim. I think there's more of a feeling to that claim than any evidence you're going to ever come up with that says, okay. correct, that's that's how we um, evolved and adapted as a human species. So, so who really knows? But the idea is that every part of the brain that allows us to engage with life, if we think about language and emotion expression, if we think about touch, if we think about seeking out food and nourishing ourselves, if we think about labor and celebration and, and human connection, that everything that we do depends on movement, even if we're simply making eye contact and smiling at a loved one. And so, you know, his claim is that movement is so intrinsic to who we are as humans that that our brains really only function ideally when we are physically active and engaged in life in that way. That, you know, so one of the further claims that many anthropologists and neuroscientists make is that when we are regularly physically active, it creates such a different state in terms of our biochemistry and our neurochemistry. That is one of the reasons why people who are physically active seem to be at less risk for things like dementia and depression, the, the things that we think of as being sort of a, the brain gone wrong, um, that when we are physically active, it's like the brain knows how to be the best version of itself and it protects itself in ways that are really powerful and create resilience and healthy aging. So this idea that you know the whole reason we have a brain is to move, really the central idea is that human beings thrive when we move. And even if it's something as simple as going for a walk or getting your heart rate up, um, or engaging in sustained labor, that this changes our biochemistry and our neurochemistry in a way that goes beyond feeling good in the moment, that it actually changes the structure of the brain and the function of the brain in a way that, for example, makes us more sensitive to pleasure. Um, when people are physically active, the reward system of the brain works better to make everything that is positive in life more rewarding. When people are regularly active, it makes the brain more resilient to stress and helps people recover from psychological or social traumas. So I think that's really what I take away from the central idea is not so much sort of a story about why we have a brain, but an understanding that if we want to really take care of ourselves as human beings, which includes our brain health and every aspect of that's related to our psychological well-being, moving our bodies is one of the best ways we can do that. Makes sense. And yet at the same time, because you might, and, and you alluded to this, I mean, my area is, is spirituality and religion. And in that world, we're up against first a philosophical misnomer that the world is somehow made up of nouns. You know, that there are things where, in fact, there are no things. Everything is a verb. There are only verbs. There's only the dance. There's only movement. And it's only, which is why I liked what uh, Walpert had to say, that it's only by moving in sync with the movement or the dance of the universe that we really experience the spiritual joy and not just the physical joy. And yet, so much of our meditation practices, our spiritual practices, are about not moving. In, in fact, we have this uh, line in, in Psalm 46, verse 10, where we're told, be still and know God is good. So forget the God is good part. It's just be still and know. It seems to me that what you're saying and what a lot of researchers are saying is, no, be still and you don't know a thing. You have to be <laughs> moving. You have to be dancing. And you can either dance count 
counter the flow of the universe or with the flow of the universe. But the joy comes, it seems to me, when our movement is in harmony with the movement of the world. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Well, that's beautifully put. And I will say that I think this is really a yes and situation. So you might know uh, most of my own scientific research over the last decade has been studying the benefits of meditation. And that is done in stillness, moving the mind without moving the body. So, you know, I would never make an argument that says if we're interested in spiritual experiences or psychological well-being, that one needs to choose between stillness or movement, that there are contemplative practices that involve being still and exploring the mind. And there are also contemplative practices that involve walking and dancing and moving in flow and in synchrony with others. And I think that, you know, probably too often in some communities of faith or contemplative practice, there's an overemphasis on the silent or the internal at the expense of moving in community or moving your body or moving in nature or even the physical labor practices that are often a part of contemplative traditions. And I think that that when we find a way to integrate the two, we have the best chance of experiencing sort of the deepest things that are available to us from those traditions. I did know that was your research. That's why I brought it up. In, in the retreats I lead, we, we work with both Qigong, circle dance movement, and stillness in, in sitting meditation. But you bring up these Buddhist monks, the marathon monks of Mount Haihei. I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm pronouncing that right, in, in Japan. Can you tell us about these Buddhists and their spiritual practice? Yeah, so, so the marathon monks of Hiei, they use running outdoors as a spiritual practice. And they, they actually commit to doing a thousand runs in seven years. And this has been going on, people think, since maybe back to the 1300s. And um, the spiritual practice is to get up. I think they get up around midnight. They go out, run in the, uh, in the mountains. At first, they run 18.8 miles. But over the years, as they continue to run every night, it eventually builds up to 52.2 miles per night. So that's two marathons. And the idea is that this is as much a spiritual practice as sitting in meditation or reading spiritual texts. And the monks who actually have made it through this full commitment, they point to a number of different lessons that, that, that they learn from this commitment. One is about becoming one with nature and how the, the practice, that physical practice of running outdoors allows you to experience a kind of unity and transcendence that is different and important than one might experience through prayer or through meditation. And they also point to lessons about interdependence because a part of the the process when you go through this full commitment is you also go through some rituals in which your fellow monks have to care for you. The thing that really stood out to me is when I started to um, explore the ultra endurance world, which is sort of outside the spiritual context, people who are running, you know, multi marathons, these extreme, you know, at least a hundred miles and these incredible events often done outdoors. 
And what people were getting from this experience of running these ultra marathons or these these ultra adventure events, many people told me the same thing, that what they were really getting from it was both the experience of self-transcendence that comes from pushing your limits and going beyond what's comfortable in nature and also having to rely on one another, that you really can't get through these physical feats of endurance by yourself. You need people to help you stay nourished and to take care of you when you get ill and to help you lance blisters on your feet and just even sum up the will to keep going. And this is something the marathon monks talk about, but it's something that many people talk about who are engaging in in extreme physical challenges um, outside of spiritual context. And it's one of the things that I love most about movement. It's not just running that will teach you this, but so many forms of movement um, teach us to rely on one another and help us cooperate And that's one of the most amazing things that I learned about the neurochemistry of movement is that actually physical activity, sort of beyond the endorphin rush that makes us feel good, physical activity creates a neurochemistry that is fueled by chemicals like endocannabinoids and oxytocin, as well as endorphins that make it easier to connect with one another, that help us trust one another and bond with one another. And that's another reason I think to um, motivate us to move is to know that when we're physically active, we're priming this aspect of what it means to be human that really helps us embrace our interdependence and take pleasure in that kind of social support and contact. So that would make total sense if, you know, Daniel Wolpert, the neuroscientist, had brought that in. Because if if he's got evidence to say that the human brain, uh, the entire purpose of the human brain is to produce movement, and you couple that with your what you just explained to us, that movement produces community and cooperation, not, you know, versus maybe competition, then you could say the entire purpose of the human brain is to promote interaction, cooperation through movement. Movement is maybe the best way to do it. That that makes more sense than just keeping us moving. I, I think that people know about one aspect of this, which is what's usually called the runner's high. But I was very taken by your, I don't know, twist on it, where you say that a running, uh, that the runner's high isn't a running high, which I thought was very clever. And then you tell us it's a persistence high. So, Tell, tell me about that. I mean, what, what does it mean to persist? Are we talking about 50 some odd miles a day? No. Um, so, you know, at the very simplest level, we're talking about maybe 20 minutes of doing something that gets your heart rate up a little bit. That is harder than doing nothing, but not as hard, not the hardest thing you could possibly do. So for most people, if you tell them, I want you to, you know, go for a walk or go for a jog at a, a level that feels good but a little bit hard, they'll end up in, in exactly the perfect zone to maximize this thing that's sometimes called the runner's high, but really is a persistence high. It seems to be what happens in your brain when you engage in a physical activity that um, is basically asking you to rise to a bit of a challenge and to persist and endure. And although you see it in runners, you also see it in lots of activities like flow yoga and dancing and cycling and hiking and swimming and powerlifting. As long as you are continuously engaged in movement. One of the things that I love about, so I I haven't seen anyone else call it a persistence high. That's what I dubbed it. Because when I talk to people also about the psychology, not just the the high that you feel, you know, that if you get that kind of euphoric rush from engaging in physical activity, but how it changes how you think about yourself. And I heard from so many people that one of the benefits of movement is you get to experience yourself as someone who persists, that when you experience that first, you know, that inner voice that says, this is hard and I want to stop, 
you remember why you're doing it, that you want to have more energy, that you're taking care of your body, that you're grateful to be alive, um, and you decide to keep going, that people experience themselves as having an inner strength. Uh, they experience themselves as having, even often people talk about spiritual faith and that the act of persisting helps them connect to their faith. And so I, I like that term of persistence high because it suggests that when we are when we are active, we are training not only our, our physical well-being and stamina, but we're also training these mental strengths and and virtues that are connected to things like persistence and endurance and faith. I think it's important that people hear from you, as, as we just did, that persistence means like, let's say, 20 minutes and just keep going even for, for 20 minutes. Because I think a lot of us are convinced, no, if I don't do the 52 miles a night, I might as well not do anything. But it's, it, I mean, you're saying that really is not the case, that you can really do this in a manageable amount of time. I just say you always start where you are. You know, one of the other pretty dramatic things that you can see is that people, even at the end of life in hospice care, are choosing to be active and in, often in ways that from the outside don't look like dramatic acts of strength, but that any ability to to move your body and use your body is part of how you know you're alive and your biochemistry will shift to support feelings of optimism and energy and, and a, a sense of yourself as, as strong and capable and alive. Um, so if 20 minutes is too much, you can start with 20 seconds. And that is not an exaggeration. You know, if, if it requires you to persist, then you are persisting. And to let go of any sense that there are objective speeds or uh, lengths of time or, or any, any sort of objective metric you need to reach in order to experience some of these benefits. You know, building on the Japanese, uh, the running monks, there's a movement in Japan I think it's called meaningful life therapy mm. where are you familiar with this people in hospice, people who are dying of cancer. I think it's almost always cancer, if not exclusively. So they train to climb Mount Fuji, which is something every Japanese person sort of wants to do once in their life. So they're, they, some, some of them make it and some of them, you know, die before they, they climb the mountain, but just with that intention and the training that goes into it every day, is enough to bring them a deeper sense of joy, even in the last weeks of or, or months of their life. So, so there's a lot to be said for this persistence thing. We are almost out of time, so I wanna I wanna bring one last element into this. In fact, I'd like you to read from the book uh, about the power of joy. So I, I gave you the the paragraph I'd like to have you read, if you'd read that, and then just expand on the idea uh, of joy and, and how this all, I, I think the way you did it, joy sort of sums it all up. Yes. Physical activity helps us tap into instincts that have allowed humans to survive for millennia, the abilities to persist, cooperate, and form communities of mutual support, to invest in the future, overcome obstacles, and endure hardships to defend and protect the vulnerable, to sense ourselves connected to other people and the world we live in, to give back, reach out, and pull one another up. And the mechanism by which movement seems to accomplish all of this is joy. And what I'm talking about there is everything from the biology of how moving your body releases endorphins and endocannabinoids and all these other neurochemicals like dopamine that make you feel good in the moment. Um, 
but also how movement seems to amplify all of these instinctive human joys. That is, we take pleasure in helping others and cooperating. We take pleasure in moving to music and moving in synchrony with others. We take pleasure in in mastery and progress. And the forms of movement that I think people are drawn to in modern times, whether it's exercise or other forms of contribution to our community like gardening, um, that, that these are things where you can clearly experience those joys that are so fundamental to our human nature. And I think if anyone listening is interested in becoming more active, you know, thinking about that as a, whether a New Year's resolution or a personal goal, to think, what type of joy do I want more of in my life? And if you start to think about the movement form that might give you access to that, whether it's more social connection and time spent with particular people you want to bond with, or time by yourself, or time in nature, or tackling a challenge so that you can experience yourself as somebody who who works hard and gets stronger, whether you want to experience grace and beauty through movement or fierceness and throw punches, that there are movement forms that will give you any of these types of joy. Um, and that's the best way to approach any movement practice. And the best way to bring this conversation to a close. That's That was an excellent summary. Our guest today, Dr. Kelly McGonigal, is a research uh, psychologist, a lecturer at Stanford, and an award-winning science writer. Her newest book is The Joy of Movement, How Exercise Helps Us Find Happiness, Hope, Connection, and Courage. You can learn more about her work at kellymcgonigal.com and you can read more about her and an excerpt from this book in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Kelly, thanks so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like the show, I urge you to check out my new podcast, Conversations on the Edge, brought to you by the One River Foundation. Also, please be sure to rate and review this podcast in iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our executive producer is Ben Nussbaum. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.